Hi, this is Jim Marson. I'm calling from the UC Davis Pediatric ICU. What's going on? Oh, man, I'm so glad to hear from you. We have a 17-year-old male here that just rolled in about 10 to 15 minutes ago. He woke up this morning and wasn't acting normally. His parents noticed that he was kind of blue. They called 911 and brought him in. When the medics arrived here, they found him with a GCS of 3 and hypoxia. He came in and we were able to intubate him pretty easily, a 7.5 ET tube, and then we've been able to confirm placement with auscultation. I've got good chest rise, but the crazy thing is his bats are still really, really low. His bats are mostly in the 40s, occasionally 50s when we put him on a ventilator. We can bag him right back up, but then it seems to drop again. Also, his heart rate is really low. I can't seem to get his heart rate above 60. His blood pressure is about 85 to 45. We keep bagging him, and we're just suctioning out tons and tons of fluid. It's like fluid all day long. Do you have any ideas for me? Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, I can see right now that, you know, his stats are low, his bradycardic. I can see the monitor from here, too. Um, I see that's an ambu bag. Your RT, he's... Uh, starting to suction like one thing I might recommend with the low saturations with all this pulmonary edema is just try to let's hold some peep on them and increase your eye time while you're bagging I think that that might help that's a really good idea hold on hey can you put the peep valve on ah perfect thank you okay let's try that and then what was the other thing you said yeah, you can go ahead and turn that peep valve up. I assume you're on 100% FiO2. Just give long, slower breaths with bigger eye times there. I see lots of fluid. It's even backed up into the ambu bag there. But for the time being, just ignore that, right? So let's try and tamponade that fluid in the chest. In the meantime, I see you have an IV. I'm not sure if you're running IV fluids, but I would probably recommend giving a bolus of IV fluid given all that pulmonary edema. Yeah, we did just give a liter already. I've also been giving some epi. We've been giving a couple of one milligram doses. Should I keep going without the epi or something else like atropine since his heart rate is so low? Uh, those are good ideas. I'm hoping that his heart rate's going to come up with the saturations um, if we're able to do this. So have those standing by. That's Those are great ideas. It's not going to hurt him, but I'm hoping that they won't be necessary. Wow. So you're just saying I should just ignore the secretions that are coming out? Well, I, yeah, I think that every time we're trying to disconnect them to suction it out, um, more pulmonary fluids coming out. So one thing that we can try and do if we increase his PEEP, increase the eye time, increase his intrathoracic pressure, it's going to hopefully improve his oxygenation, um, slow the further pulmonary edema, and hopefully that, that saturation, and once the oxygen comes up, his heart rate will come up with the addition of fluid. I agree with the leader, and I wouldn't um, be against starting another leader if there's a nurse free to be able to help hang that. Hold on, let me see if there is. Did you guys hear that? Okay, let's give it a shot. Oh my goodness, it looks like it's actually working. Well, again, you guys, it's a great job that you've been doing there. And again, that peep valve, you might want to make sure that it's at 10 there. And slowly, you can start to bag, um, back off on the length of your eye time. Um, the CO2 is probably a little bit higher now because you've slowed things down a bit, but that's okay. And I think what we need to do is help try and tamponade that um, pulmonary edema, um, get his saturations up. That'll keep his heart rate up. You're giving volume back, and then um, then we can worry about normalizing his ventilation. It looks like it's working. 
I just really wanted to get all that fluid out. That's amazing. It's a very common thing. When the tube's getting filled with fluid, it's a common thing to re disconnect and try and suction it out, but you're gonna lose that battle. Um, so, yep, it's the best thing is to try and actually get it back in, push it back in and tamponade it. Well, it looks like actually our blood pressure is coming up and our stats are getting better here. I think we're gonna work on packaging him up and sending him off to you guys if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. Our, you know, our team is ready, and we can send out our uh, transport team. If you have a local helicopter that's faster, that's fine too. So, um, I'd like to be able to stay connected with you if that's okay, um, just to make sure that everything's going okay. We may need to make some ventilator adjustments um, depending upon how things settle out here. But he's going to have to be transported. Um, on a ventilator with some, you know, I don't know, between 10 and 15 a peep, um, and hopefully the transition to the ventilator will be okay. So if it's okay with you, um, I'd like to be able to kind of stand here by the bedside. Yeah, that'd be awesome. It's my pleasure. Again, you guys did a great job. This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Critical Access. Welcome back to EM Pulse. Man, that is a scary situation. A 17-year-old intubated but with a serious oxygenation problem. I work in a tertiary care center with tons of resources, but I still want to pick you, doctor, in my ear to help me through that moment. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I definitely appreciate our pick you colleagues for those moments as well. And I do believe that challenging moments are best shared with an external brain, such as a supportive colleague to problem solve with. Yeah, here at our academic hospital, I always have other physicians around for backup, but I have friends and colleagues in the community who don't have a PICU doctor in-house for these moments, and I respect the burden they carry. Yeah, when you're at a critical access hospital, you really, truly have to be ready for anything, anytime. As you may or may not know, a critical access hospital is a hospital with 25 or fewer acute care inpatient beds located more than 35 miles from another hospital that maintains an annual average length of stay of 96 hours or less for acute care patients and provides 24-7 emergency care. Congress created the Critical Access Hospital designation in 1997 in response to rural hospital closures. This designation allows them to build differently and access other resources so they can remain financially viable while still providing health care to people where they are. And this is important because the CDC's website on rural health points out that rural Americans are more likely to die from heart disease, cancer, unintentional injury, chronic lower respiratory disease, and stroke than their urban counterparts. Unintentional injury deaths are approximately 50% higher in rural areas than in urban areas, partly due to greater risk of death from motor vehicle crashes and opioid overdoses. In general, residents of rural areas in the United States tend to be older and sicker than their urban counterparts. And this is true for children as well. The CDC reports that children in rural areas with mental, behavioral, and developmental disorders face more community and family challenges than children in urban areas with the same disorders. Yeah, there are a lot of people looking at how we can improve care to our rural populations, and access hospitals are one of the ways. 
But the question is, how can we help our colleagues in these remote centers? Well, we talked about telemedicine last month, and I would propose that telemedicine is one way. Our own colleague, Dr. Jim Marson, has dedicated his life's work to providing a helping hand to those who care for children outside of children's hospitals. Jim is a pioneer in telemedicine and a pediatric intensivist here at UC Davis. He is the director of the UC Davis Center for Health and Technology and a professor of pediatrics. Jim, what is the Center for Health and Technology? So early on, UC Davis invested a lot in ways to connect with rural communities. And among those opportunities was the application of telehealth. And so the Center for Health and Technology was developed as a center of expertise that clinicians and healthcare providers could go to as a resource to use telemedicine to connect with patients living in rural and underserved communities throughout Northern California. And how does the Center for Health and Technology serve the community? Well, I think that it's changed over time as the technologies and applications for telehealth have changed. Originally, I think it was created out of the need to transfer our expertise to rural and mid-sized communities in Northern California. You know, we serve a vast area the size of Pennsylvania. We're the only academic health center in the region. And so to be able to provide specialty services that are regionalized, telehealth made a lot of sense. As the technologies have become less expensive and broadband has become more available, clearly it's not just for rural populations anymore. We've taken on new applications of telemedicine, whether it's patient monitoring, even within the hospital, communications within the hospital, discharge patients in the city and such. But, you know, UC Davis has still continued the whole entire time that the uh, Center for Health and Technology has been around, which has been for more than 15 years, providing subspecialty consultations to communities and community clinics in rural Northern California. And how does the Center for Health and Technology actually work in the bigger hospital system? Originally, you know, we came as our own center and a lot of our work was kind of independent from the rest of clinical operations. But as telehealth, mobile health, digital health, remote patient monitoring, all of this has become more integrated in the way that we deliver care, we've had to integrate our center a lot more. And so I think that's been kind of defining for us in the past three years where we're not seen as this side center that does telemedicine, but we are an operationally integral part to how we deliver care in the health system. Okay, let's say that there's a young child with horrible abdominal pain and the pediatrician has done everything that they can, but there's no peds GI in the area. Do they just sign up to get a televisit at UC Davis? That example that you gave is probably the most common thought of and first types of application of telemedicine. It was that specialists are regionalized in big cities. Community providers in mid-sized and smaller towns don't have access to the specialists. So rather than having the 
patient and their family travel long distance to see the specialist, they will go to their local community provider, use video conferencing to be able to connect the specialist to the room so that all of a sudden there's the specialist, the primary care provider, and the patient all in one room. A lot of telehealth programs started out using that clinical situation as their their first uses of telehealth. And it's very common now for behavioral mental health, things that don't require a lot of hands-on examination, like, you know, for example, endocrinology, infectious disease, nephrology. No offense to those specialists out there. I'm not saying that you don't do physical exams, but a little bit less so than, let's say, a sports medicine specialist. So that's the way it would work. And there would be a relationship between the specialist at UC Davis Health and the community clinic, the rural health clinic, the FQHC, the hospital-based clinic, to be able to provide those services. But as you know, the applications have grown dramatically, right? So that scheduled outpatient specialty visit application that uses telehealth is just now one of many applications in the portfolio of telehealth. What are some of the innovative ways we use telehealth in the emergency department? A lot of the telehealth programs, the application in the emergency department started out of ER to ER consultations. And telestroke is probably the most common example of that, where an emergency department may not have 24-7 coverage by a stroke neurologist. And by setting up a telehealth program, a emergency department can access that expertise using telehealth. That's become, honestly, a standard of care. There's been lots of research to demonstrate that the application in telestroke is as good as having an on-site neurologist and better than not, clearly. And so overall outcomes are improved by the use of telehealth. But you can use it for lots of different specialties, for example. So if you don't have a nephrologist, a cardiologist, all of those specialists can be available to really any emergency department. That's the goal, right? The type of care that you receive, the quality of care that you receive, the specialist consultations that you receive really shouldn't be dependent upon what emergency department you go to. And then... With the onset of COVID here, of course, emergency departments are using telemedicine to help triage patients from their homes, from the field, and even doing follow-ups post-discharge. So even within emergency medicine, a lot of times I think that they saw themselves as a recipient of specialty consultations. But now, not only can they receive those consultations, but they themselves are seeing patients in their own homes, in other emergency departments, or for post-discharge follow-up. And how are you using telemedicine to help critical access hospitals? So yeah, for pediatrics in general, pediatrics is more regionalized than adult medicine. And so as a pediatric critical care physician, one of my interests from the moment I started here at UC Davis way back in 1998 was how to have our expertise at the bedside of every emergency department where a critically ill child might present. That was one of the first applications that UC Davis did and I did personally was connecting to community, typically critical access hospital emergency departments 
if you have a telemedicine unit there, we're on 24-7. If a sick kid comes into the emergency department, they could have a pediatric critical care or pediatric emergency medicine physician at that child's bedside. And we've been doing research on that for more than 10 years. And I think it's been transformative. Lots of other programs have started to do this. And it's not only for the critical care physicians. Our hospitalist colleagues here and at other hospitals are now doing it as well. Even some of our our neonatologists do this. Again, as a pediatrician, my examples are in pediatrics, but we're starting a new project here where our trauma surgeons will be conducting telemedicine on acutely injured children in remote emergency departments. There's lots of data to demonstrate that over triage is common. We know this in regional children's hospitals, and it makes sense. You want to err on the side of safety, and if you're not sure if a kid is too sick, the right thing to do is to transfer them. But the imposition that poses on the family is not insignificant, and studies that have looked at the rates of over triage, it's pretty astounding. You know, 20, 30, sometimes even reports of up to 40% of kids that are transferred to children's hospitals end up going home from the emergency department without necessarily having a, a procedure that couldn't be done in the local community emergency department. So the potential for telemedicine to deliver the regionalized care at the community or rural emergency department, it makes it possible. And hopefully, we can reduce potentially avoidable transfers in this way. And again, that's good for the health system. It's good for taxpayer dollars. It's good for the families. That sounds amazing. But what does the data show? Does telemedicine reduce healthcare utilization? This is where it's very important to have research conducted. You would think that I would love seeing research where telemedicine works, but I also love areas where telemedicine doesn't work. And so this is just a pitch for conducting research on, is it going to really help patients or not? Again, it's been done for things like telestroke. We've done some research with pediatric teleemergency, and we think that the evidence is there. But other times, it, it doesn't do what we think it should do. And there's been multiple trials of remote patient monitoring for patients with congestive heart failure that have not worked well and have actually increased healthcare utilization because we monitor them a little bit more closely at home. We call them into the emergency department more. So I think that doing the research is going to be very important because these are great ideas on how to best monitor these patients, but sometimes it's actually had the the opposite effect where our monitoring or our easy access to a provider, a nurse, a doctor results in, hey, why don't you come in and we'll check that out? You know, for the folks that do the Teladoc, the Amwell, MD Live, all of those doctor on demand type of applications where you're able to get access to a physician at any time of day. The idea is to keep them out of the emergency department. But it's hard to say. The research is not necessarily supportive that that's what happens. Some research shows that, yeah, well, it might keep some of those patients out of the emergency department, but overall, it might increase overall utilization of our healthcare services because it's such easy access. What about specifically at critical access hospitals? Does the data support telemedicine use there? 
Yeah, again, the most commonly studied use of it is with telestroke. But there have been other studies that have evaluated, let's say, example, access to nephrologists, cardiologists, and such. The Avera Health System has done lots of studies with teleemergency, and they've shown positive impacts. You know, again, when you have a critical access hospital, when you give them access to the same spectrum of specialists that regionalized medical centers have, you would expect quality to increase. And that's what I think a lot of their work has been able to demonstrate. What are some of the barriers to telehealth? Well, people talk about, you know, the technology and the payment parity and things like that. But I'll have to say that I think that it's clinicians' time. There's not a lot of doctors that are sitting in their office going, gosh, I wish I could be seeing more patients today. And so when I go to to my colleagues and say, hey, there's a clinic out here that would love to have your help or an emergency department that could wants to call upon you intermittently, their response is pretty much universal that like, hey, I'm busy. I have a two-week wait for my in-person clinic. Why do I want to start to see patients that aren't in my own clinic? Now, having said that, there are barriers like in payment parity, for example, right? A lot of restrictions have been lifted during the COVID pandemic, and utilization is greater of telehealth services in states where there is payment parity. And by payment parity, I mean that the doctors get paid the same amount when they treat a patient over telemedicine than they would if they saw and treated that patient in person. So that definitely increases utilization, having payment parity, but it didn't all of a sudden make everybody use telemedicine, right? Pre-pandemic, at least in our health system, the use of video visits for patients was around 1% to 2% of all outpatient visits. That's a common number across the country. And then COVID hit, and it's you know about 50 60 70% were using telemedicine. That was put upon us just because we had to. We don't expect those numbers to go back to what they were before, but they've certainly fallen since at UC Davis now are million or so outpatient encounters per year that we deliver. It's about 20 to 30% are now video visits. Granted, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but we think that's where that number probably should be. Some people even advocate for higher payments, for example. Like if I provide a service to help manage a child in an outside emergency department and we all of a sudden avoid a helicopter ride and a transfer in the charges associated with our tertiary hospital, that's a big savings to the health plan. And for me to take time out of the care of patients that I have in my own ICU is not insignificant. So in there certain circumstances, I think it's very reasonable to advocate that that savings should be shared with them. And that's, that's what it has to happen. Providers, health systems, they have to be incentivized to do the right thing sometimes, unfortunately, right? The other thing is it's increased as the technology has gotten better, right? Doctors don't want to sit and click and click and click and for things to not work or for them to not be able to see their patient right or for them to be frozen or dropped from a call. So, you know, technology is getting better, but it's not perfect. 
How has telehealth impacted health equity? I will say that for those of us that started out using telemedicine, our first thing was like, hey, we can now access patients that are in rural areas, that are in underserved communities, that can't take time out of work to come meet us because they have full-time jobs and can't afford childcare or can't afford to miss their work. We saw telehealth as a great equalizer, but it hasn't necessarily been that, unfortunately. You know, lots of places were focusing on inequity and access, you know, racial, ethnic minorities, rural populations, elderly populations, things like that. But then, you know, then there's services that pop up like, hey, swipe your credit card and you can see a doctor, right? And those types of services, I would submit, add to disparities in access and quality health care and right along the socioeconomic lines. So it's disheartening to see tens and tens of millions of dollars going into startup companies that actually add to these types of disparities when we want to be able to use it as an equalizer. Now, with the advent of COVID, data has been coming out right now to show, kind of as expected, you know, folks that are transitioned from in-person to telemedicine are more likely to be white and higher SES, non-racial ethnic minorities. People are tracking that and implementing processes to do it right, right from the start. So we have a number of measures in place to avoid adding to disparities in access to care, right? We want this to be available for all patients. I really like that. That is being intentional about how we utilize telehealth. Jim, what do you see as the ideal path forward for telehealth in the next, let's just say, 15 years? What I hope can happen is that we can reimagine the way that we deliver healthcare, right? So it's all just been about what makes financial sense. And that has been for the patient to travel to the hospital, to travel to the, the clinic to get their care. But some instances, it could just be a message from the patient to their primary care provider. It could be a video or a phone call from the primary care to the provider. It could be a message from the primary care provider to the specialist. Or you could just do a video call to the patient's home from the specialist to start it off, to gather data before they come in person. Or it could be where the patient goes to the primary care provider and they use telemedicine to deliver that specialty consultation with both providers in the room. So a letter doesn't have to be sent, so everyone's on the same page. The patient still identifies with their medical home, with their primary care provider. Or if the patient has to come to the clinic or the regionalized health system. So there's this full spectrum of how these technologies can be leveraged. Or let's say a patient with diabetes. We can monitor their glucose continuously, remotely. We should know when the teenager isn't checking their glucose or if their glucose is high ahead of time. So all of these different applications of telemedicine should be incorporated in the way that we deliver healthcare. And we shouldn't just fall into the old rut of, okay, your patient has a problem, go see your primary care provider. If they don't have that expertise that you refer to see the specialist. There's so many other opportunities on 
and using electronic health records and mobile health and digital health to be able to better solve that in a more efficient, I would say higher quality and certainly more patient-centered way. One thing that I've learned is that it has value in bringing people together and different providers together. We did these surveys with outside emergency medicine physicians when we, after we did a telephone consultation versus after we did a telemedicine consultation. And we asked them different questions like, you know, how helpful was a consultation? We even asked like, you know, how was the quality of the advice that was delivered to you over this type of a consultation? And it was very interesting because we found that the outside ER docs ranked us higher on, you know, the quality of advice that we were giving when we use telemedicine than if we use telephone. I don't know if we're less rude or something like that, but when you're having a visual conversation with somebody, they're much more your colleague than they are a nuisance that might be on the telephone. God bless you, emergency medicine physicians, you know, calling for a specialist and having to wake them up. But I think that if there was video added to that, there would be less consternation. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but you know, it's like, hey, I'm your colleague, I'm your friend, I'm a person, I'm here working, and then you see them as well. I think that it's it's added a lot to collegiality. Now, many community emergency medicine physicians are honestly my friends, and it's because of telemedicine, because I see their faces all the time now, and they're like, hey, hey, Jim, how's it going? And I'm like, good, Scott, you know, how are you? Or how are you, Jamie? You know, how are the kids? And things like that. We get to know those things just because of the video interaction. And I think that makes the consultation, the delivery of care that much better. Well, there is no easy way for how to fix our broken healthcare system, but I love that Jim is thinking outside the box to provide high quality care to everyone. Clearly, we need innovative, multifaceted solutions to these complex problems, but telehealth should be an integral component. Pulse check. The CDC reports that compared to urban areas, rural areas have higher rates of unhealthy behaviors, less access to health care, and less access to healthy foods. We need solutions to improve health for everyone. Telehealth is a viable way to offer subspecialty care across the United States and to support our colleagues in rural America. We can use technology to provide care where our patients are when they need it. We need buy-in from the government, insurance companies, and from other physicians. We want to hear from you. Have you had a PICU doctor or a neurologist virtually at your side in the ED? How did it go? Share with us at EM Pulse Podcast and pass the word about EM Pulse Podcast to your colleagues. Thank you to our department and hospital here at UC Davis. I am proud to work at a hospital that 15 years ago recognized the need to reach our broader community and saw the possibility of telemedicine before it was cool. <laughs> you know, Sarah, that story at the beginning of the podcast, Jim said he actually hooked up his TV at home to be able to work through that scenario. He has been doing this since 2000, man. Yeah, and thank you to OM Audio Productions for innovating with technology for us. See y'all next month.